Um, hey, well, uh, hey, you're back. I can't believe you came back. I am, um, I am inspired by uh, the fact that you guys keep coming for these Jude sermons because this has been a tough series and this has not been your happy preaching. This has been a whole book of the Bible that's really a warning against um, you know, all these false teachers and false followers and it's been some heavy stuff and so I'm glad you're back and uh, hopefully we'll continue this together. We're going to be in the first uh, verses 11 through 13 today, 11 through 13 and kind of how we like to do it is we'll just read these verses and then we will pray and we'll jump into uh, the message again. Um, just to review a little bit, if you're new with us, the book of Jude um, was written by the half-brother of Jesus, same mom, different dad, and uh, he didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah while Jesus was alive, but once you see the resurrected Christ, that'll really convince you that he began to worship even his brother as the Lord. And so, uh, so he becomes a follower of Jesus and uh, involved in the church in some way, and he writes this letter. You kind of could call it the letter that didn't want to be written because he wrote this letter saying, I really want to talk to you about our common salvation and some warm and fuzzy, mushy stuff that would just encourage you, but I felt compelled to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for certain people have come and crept in unnoticed who are out for your destruction. They're false followers. They're false teachers. And so he writes this letter of a warning. And each week we've been just going a couple of verses at a time and because there's so much packed into um, this little book. Every verse is just pregnant with meaning. And so um, we've been... We've been going through it together. So here we are. We're going back in. We're going to learn some more about false followers, false teachers. We're going to be in verse 11 through 13. Are you here? Are you ready? You have your Bibles. You're good to go. All right, here we go. Verse 11. Now, I want to know, we're just jumping right into a section. So he just starts right off. He just got finished um, giving us some examples of these false teachers. Then he says in verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, that your spirit is among us and in us. Lord, I thank you for gathering us together and allowing us to worship you and enter into your presence and, and hear from you through your word. Father, I thank you for preserving your word for us and this letter from Jude that we get to learn from the example of others and get to see um, what it looks like uh, to turn away from you so that we can draw near to you, God. And so I pray that you'd speak today, that you'd open our ears and our eyes and our hearts just to receive a word from you, that we'd be attentive to your word. And I pray that you'd speak through me, God. 
Use me. I need you in this moment. By the power of your Holy Spirit, come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, some of you know this, but I'm fifth born of, five, of eight siblings. So I have eight, uh, there's seven siblings, eight of us all together. I'm fifth born, which means that I had the privilege of seeing my older siblings make some stupid choices and then see the consequences for their stupid choices. And um, I'm going to save you some of those stories, okay, although there are plenty of them. But uh, what happens in the Froman house stays in the Froman house. So, um, but, but what that gave me is the ability to um, learn from their negative example. <laughs> and their examples aren't all negative. But learn from their mistakes and the pain that those choices caused them. And so then I didn't have to experience that same pain because if I received what I witnessed, I could then uh, make better choices. And so I attribute a lot of where I am today to the mistakes of my older siblings. Okay, love you all. Love you. Thank you, older siblings. And maybe you're the same. Maybe you have some older siblings and you're like, yeah, they, they taught me a lot. And uh, look, that's what Jude is doing uh, here <laughs> Uh, today. What he is giving us is some negative examples in the Bible, some negative examples of people who have turned away from God and led others away from God. And then he's hoping for us, the followers of Christ, to uh, read and study these examples and learn from them so that we don't fall into the same error, so that we don't have to experience the pain that they had to experience for their sin and turning away from God. And so my hope for today is as we study these, exam these three examples is that um, you would learn from it, that I would learn from it, that we would learn from these examples and choose a different path, okay? Choose a different path. So uh, there's three examples he gives, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. We're going to look at each of them. The first one is the way of Cain. What is he talking about in verse 11 where he says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Well, he, what is the way of Cain? Uh, you see your point there is empty religion. The way of Cain. One of, one of the things that I just want to point out is that um, Jude writes these things. He rattles off three uh, Old Testament examples without giving any explanation. He just, the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, the rebellion of Korah, no examples. No, no, no explanation. Um, meaning that his audience knew uh, these stories. And um, who do you think has more Bibles? Do you think we have more Bibles today, or do you think they had access to more Bibles in the first century? Which one do you think? Yeah, we definitely have access to more Bibles, personal copies of the scriptures, you probably have 10 of them in your house somewhere. And um, I know I do. And so we have uh, tons of copies of the scripture, yet with limited access to the scripture, they had a seemingly fuller knowledge. The general congregation would have had a robust understanding of the scriptures 
which I just wanted to just say, now this is like off topic of sermon, uh, doesn't have anything to do with the point, but it's just a, like, let's read our Bibles, guys. Let's read our Bibles. He rattles these three examples off with no explanation because they would have known it. And I don't doubt that there's some of you, many of you maybe in the room, who kind of have an idea of what these three examples are. But I'm also convinced that most of us have no idea what some of these examples are. And so what if we, as the body of Christ, actually read the scriptures that have been entrusted to us and that we have readily access to? All right, so anyways, just get in your Bible, read your Bible, it's good for you. All right, number one, the way of Cain, empty religion. This story is in Genesis 4. You had Adam and Eve were created, and then the fall, and then they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel um, was a uh, shepherd, and Cain was a farmer. And uh, in Genesis 4, it describes this um, event where they come to worship the Lord. And they both bring a sacrifice. Um, Abel brought a lamb, and a spotless lamb, and so he gave this blood sacrifice. Cain brought his, uh, some kind of sacrifice from his garden. So vegetables or grain or something of that nature. And, um, and it says that God accepted and was pleased with Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. We're not given a ton of explanation for why he accepted or, and rejected those offerings, but what we know is that that really uh, did not sit well with Cain, and he became envious or jealous of his brother Abel and killed Abel. We have the first murder is uh, the first two brothers. Cain kills Abel, and then God curses Cain. And so we have to ask the question, like, why, this is the way of Cain, but why did God not accept Cain's offering? And there are some different theories. One is that, um, that in the Leviticus, it gives us some explanation that there, the, a sin offering or a guilt offering was an offering of blood. It was supposed to be an offering of an animal. And um, there were other offerings, many different types of offerings. Some offerings were of grain. They were more like peace offerings or celebration offerings, but... A guilt offering or a sin offering was supposed to be blood. So there's some thought that maybe God rejected his offering because he didn't bring an offering of blood, an animal sacrifice. He kind of decided, I'm going to come to God on my own terms. I know what God wants, what he requires, but I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to worship him in the way that I want, in my own terms. And uh, 1 John 3.12 gives us some details about this Cain story where he says we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother and why did he murder him because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous he came with you know this evil heart this evil desire he didn't want to come to God and worship him in the way that God required he wanted to do it on his own. And, and we can do the same thing, don't we? I mean, we want to come to God on our own terms. We want to bring God. We want to sacrifice the things to God that are easy to sacrifice and not the things that are difficult. We want to say, hey, God, I know you require me to leave my sin, and so I'm going to sacrifice all the sins that I don't like about myself. Like, I'm going to work on purging those things out of my life. I'll sacrifice the things that I don't enjoy, but I kind of want to keep the sins that I really do enjoy. 
and I'm not going to give up these things. And we come to God instead of saying, how does God want to be worshipped? Looking in His revealed word and His revealed will and how does He want to be worshipped? How does He want me to live as a follower of Him? We just decide how we're going to do it. That's kind of one idea of the way of Cain. Now, that's interesting, but I think there's more support for a different reason that God didn't accept Cain's offering. And we get more details in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commanded, commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so he says, by faith, Abel offered to God, and through his faith, he was commended. So it seems like the real issue around the Cain and Abel sacrifice story is not necessarily the type of sacrifice. It's more so what was behind the sacrifice. It was a heart. Abel came with a heart of faith, and Cain came without faith. Cain looked religious. He showed up to the offering that day. He made an offering to God. It probably smelled really nice. It was a, he looked nice and religious, but his heart was far from God. He didn't bring this in faith. But yet Abel truly trusted God. And Cain, he was just going through the motions. He wasn't doing it in faith. Now faith is important. Faith is the thing God wants from us. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God. And we see in that scene, you know, God was pleased with one sacrifice, but He was not pleased with another because without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 14.23 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That if we don't live in faith, we're living in sin. And so false followers, they have a form of godliness. They know how to look godly and sound godly, but they're doing it on their own terms. Their heart is far from God. They're really in it for selfish reasons. That Cain is doing what he wants to do. And his heart is revealed even further with his hatred and anger towards his brother. And this ultimate, this murderous act, um, which leads to hatred for true uh, faithful followers. So the fact that he's not accepted by God then makes him upset at the people who are accepted by God. Cain was the first murderer in world history. And, um, and what he wants you to know is so too, these false teachers and Jude, these false followers, they too are out to murder your souls. They're not out for life. They're not life-giving people. They're killing people. Spiritually. So how does this uh, apply to us? Well, I think we too do this. We go through the motions, but our hearts are far from God. Maybe you've been in church long enough that you know the etiquette, you know 
the right behavior around certain people. You know the language. You can make um, um, theologically accurate statements about God in the Bible, but yet your heart is far from God. You know the Christian language, but you don't personally know Christ as Lord. And uh, so that's the difference. There's a difference between believing things and treasuring those things. I, I, can, I can affirm some beliefs intellectually, but have, have they transformed your heart to where you treasure them, you value them, and you desire them? Do I hate my sin and love righteousness? Do I love the law of the Lord, as David said? I love the law of the Lord, or do I kind of see the law of the Lord as stuffy and my sin as fun? That's the question. Are we two going through the motions? I think we all need to ask ourselves this question from time to time. Am I like Cain who came and brought an offering? Maybe you give your tithes and your offerings and you serve in church and you dress the right way and you say amen in the sermon, but, but where is your heart? All right, so that's the, the way of Cain, empty religion. It looks good, but it's empty or dead inside. The second thing is the, is the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam. Now, uh, we get this. I mean, it's right there in verse 11. Walk in the way of Cain, abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam's error. Now, we get this story out of... Um, out of Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and 31. So it's right there in Numbers. And uh, to tell you the story, to summarize the story for you, uh, Israel um, was entering into the promised land. They had, they had, God had freed them from the exodus. They had exited slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, went through the desert wilderness. A whole generation had passed away. Finally, the generation that's going to enter into the promised land, they're here, and God is telling them, as you go into the promised land, wipe everybody out, like taking them all out, and that's a difficult thing. We'll talk about that later, but the idea is that he's like, look, we don't want, we don't want you to mix with false gods. I don't want you to be led astray by false gods. So wipe everybody out. So they're going and they're conquering. Boom, 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 just conquering. City after city. God is with them in victory. And then they're approaching uh, a city. And Balak, which is the king of Moab, he's like, doesn't want them to come. And so he hires a prophet. He goes and says, hey, go get the prophet Balaam to come curse God's people. Bring a curse against Israel. Well, God tells Balaam not to do so. Numbers 22.12 says, God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So God's like, don't go. Don't entertain this idea. Don't think about it. But, you know, they, go, they come to Balaam and say, Hey, look, we've got some presents for you. We've got a little cash for you. How about you just come? So Balaam goes. And uh, we even see the scene, most, Balaam's most known for the talking donkey scene. Talking donkey. And so he's riding his donkey to go see Balak, to go curse Israel. And uh, an angel stands in the way. And the donkey sees the angel, but 
Balaam doesn't see the angel, and so the donkey stops, as you would if you saw an angel, like with a sword. And so the donkey stops, and Balaam doesn't understand why he stops, and so he's like kicking the donkey, and then the angel moves a little bit, and the donkey moves a little bit, and the donkey slams Balaam's leg against the wall, and and so then Balaam's like beating the donkey, and then God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey's like, what are you doing? Have I ever done what have I done to you? Anyways, uh, I'm sorry, there's like so many lines from Shrek are coming to mind. It's like, I'm making waffles, you know? Like, so the donkey's like, what are you doing? And, and then God opens the eyes of Balaam to see the angel. He's like, oh. And the angel said, you know, you, you better be grateful for that donkey who stopped because I would have killed you if you proceeded. And I think God was just communicating to Balaam, hey, you need to be careful. I've told you not to do this and you're doing it anyways. Well, Balaam proceeds. He goes and makes sacrifices and he looks over Israel and he goes to proclaim a curse, but what comes out is only a blessing. He does this three times. Balak's getting frustrated because he hired the guy to curse Israel and all he's doing is blessing Israel. He's like, ah, don't do this anymore. And so three times he goes to curse them and he blesses them. And then Balak comes to him again and says, look, I'll give you more money, more prominent positions in the kingdom. Like, I'm going to make your life great if you'll just curse Israel. So Balaam says, well, look, here's the thing. God is not going to allow me to curse Israel, but I have an idea. If we send the Midianite women into Israel, into the camp of Israel, the Midianite women, apparently they're beautiful women. So if we send the Midianite women into the camp of Israel, and then they sleep with Israel. But before they sleep with Israel, they're like, hey, before we lay down, do you want to worship this God with me? And they lead Israel into idol worship and sexual immorality. And Balaam says, and then God will curse them. Yeah, I can't curse them. If we do this and we lead them into sin, God will curse them. And that is exactly what happens. Um, here's some verses that sum up or shed light on Balaam's error, 2 Peter 2.15. We've said before that 2 Peter 2 is like a parallel passage to Jude. It says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the sons of Beor, and loved gain from wrongdoing. So he gained from wrongdoing. A Revelation 2.14 says, But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So there's two main errors in the story of Balaam. One is the error of greed. Um, greed. Now, we don't ever see ourselves as greedy, but that would... That would manifest itself in materialism. It's uh, the, the, our heart being wrapped around things. That's what it looks like. 
See, the error of Balaam is he compromised his convictions. He knew what was right and true, and he compromised those convictions uh, for greed, for materialism, for prominence. His greed caused him to compromise for the sake of personal gain. He promoted falsehood for personal gain, financial gain. He's the type of guy who says, okay, God, I know you don't want me to do it, and so if you don't want me to do it, just don't let me do it. Stop me. Well, you haven't stopped me, so I'm going to do it. That's, that's the idea. Like, as long as God doesn't actually physically stop me, I'm just going to go ahead with it, even though I know it's wrong. So one is that the, of greed or materialism. The second thing that his um, compromise was, was that he led others into sin. That he greedily led people into sin so that he could gain personally. Balaam's error, uh, whenever he did this and, and gave this counsel to the king of Balak and they sent the women in and, and they gave themselves over to idol worship and sexual immorality, God sent a plague on Israel. Killed 24,000 people. Destroyed them. He caused others to sin. He led others into sin, which is one of the most dangerous things you can do. It's one of the worst things you can do. It's like one thing to sin. It's another thing to cause others to sin. And there are some strong warnings against this in the Scriptures. In Romans 14, 13, it says, Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Matthew, I mean, yeah, Matthew, it, not Matthew, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to become least in the kingdom? Loosen the holiness of God for believers. The, that God calls us to a holy life and a righteous life. Let's loosen that requirement and then teach others to do the same. He says this again in Matthew 18, 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's better for you to just go drown yourself than to lead someone into sin. And that's the sin of Balaam. Now you might say, I've never done that. And I would never do such a thing. I would never lead somebody to sin, cause someone to sin. But you don't, I think what we don't understand is that whenever we turn away from God, there are people that we influence who will also turn away from God. And there are certain activities, sinful activities, that you do with others. So like if you're committing sexual sin, many times you're also causing someone else to commit sexual sin. If you're committing sin of, of uh, excess of alcohol, many times you're doing that with others. 
and you're causing them to commit the same sin. A lot of times, you don't sin alone. I mean, there's, certainly there's tons of sins that you do alone. But many times, you, 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 you do it with others. That's why they say, a companion, the proverb says, a companion of fools suffers harm, right? Because whenever you've gotten in the most trouble, you've been with your friends. You've been with people. And so um, the error of Balaam is that in my sin, I've caused others to sin. And he compromised his convictions for the sake of gain. Now, uh, one person said that uh, uh, many Christians would not deny Christ under persecution. That many, many Christians would, if you were threatened with persecution, you would not give up your faith. You would not deny Christ under persecution. But many Christians would if offered a large sum of money. Somebody came to you and said, hey, I will give you $5 million if you just never go to church again, don't read your Bible again, don't pray again. If you, if you uh, sign a contract that you'll never do those things again, I will give you $5 million. You know what you'd do? You'd start saying, well, you know what? The, the church is more than just a gathering. And so, you know, I think I could still be a believer without going to church. So that's all, that's all right. And here's the thing. I've got some, some of the word hidden in my heart, and you can't take that from me. So I'll just rely on that. I don't really need the Bible. That's not necessary, right? And I've prayed a lot of prayers already. To say, God gets me. We know each other. I think I'll be okay. Yeah, let's do it. And it's tempting. And I was bailing. He's like, he offered a lot of money and power if he'd just compromise his convictions. So what do we do? How do we keep from this error of Balaam? We'll look in uh, Matthew 6, 33. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, these things being all the things that we need in life will be added to you. How do we keep from the error of Balaam? We put Christ as central, first focus in our life. That we're not going to allow material things to cause our heart to wander from Christ. We're going to put Christ first. Seek Christ first. And I'll tell you, in, in our culture, in the most wealthy nation in the history of the world, um, We've got to guard ourselves against this. Like this is uh, serious because if we aren't active and keep seeking first the kingdom of God, then we will be active in drifting towards materialism and greed and compromise. All right. So that's errors, Balaam. Compromise of convictions. Number three is... Uh, the rebellion of Korah. You love these transitions, don't you? They're like sharp, right to the next thing. The rebellion of Korah is arrogance and pride. Look at verse 11 again. Gained Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Um, now the story of Korah 
is uh, in Numbers uh, 16. In Numbers 16. So Israel is in the wilderness at this point. And Korah is actually, he's a Levite. So he has a role, a ministry um, in, in the things of God. But he's not content with that. And his arrogance and pride takes a hold of him, and he rejects and rebels against the authority of Moses. And he says this to Moses in Numbers 16.3, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So Korah is like, you're nothing special, Moses. I can do what you do. And so I'm going to do what you do. I'm going to reject your authority over me, and I'm going to be the boss. I want to be in charge. Um, and so he rejected Moses. He led a revolt. He got a, a, a number of people, and they led a revolt against Moses. And so Moses, what was crazy about Moses is that as soon as Moses heard this, he fell on his face and began to pray and intercede for these people because he knows God, and God's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And so Moses is like, please, God, don't kill him. Like, they're just stupid. Please, Lord, don't, don't do this. And he said, so Moses, God bless him. He's got such a heart for these people, and, and he's trying to intercede on their behalf, but they're still rebelling against him. And so Moses says, okay, Korah, well, let's do this. You go get all the people that want to do your own thing. You, um, you, you get some incense, they did these sense like they're going to offer up an incense offering. I'll get my priests and we'll do the same and we'll let God be the judge of who gets the job. And so they do, they, Korah and his people, they go and they, they get the incense and they're burning incense to the Lord. And, and Moses and his people, they're burning incense to the Lord. And so he's like, let's let, just let God judge. And then the, the glory of God comes down and speaks. And this is what he says. Moses, step away. <laughs> like it's that scene, like when somebody says something that's like sacrilegious, you like step away and you're like, just in case lightning strikes, like that's what's happening. God's like, move away. And so Moses is like. And the earth opens up and swallows Korah and all his followers shuts in over them. And all the people are like, oh, let's go follow Moses from now on. And then fire comes down and kills the rest of the people who are following him that the, the earth didn't swallow. He was judged. He was condemned for his rebellion against Moses. So, not the, so then again, he, he rebelled against this established authority, uh, especially the word of God. See, here's the thing is that Moses didn't make this rule. Like it's the word of God that said, um, God told him only those in the line of Aaron can be priests. And um, Korah was not in the line of Aaron. He was a Levite, so he was, had a service role in the, in the temple, but he was not in the line of Aaron, so he couldn't be a priest. That was God's word, not Moses' opinion. And so he's here shaming Moses for standing on the word of God. Moses is one of the few people who's like, it's just it's the word. I'm just standing on what the word is. I'm refusing to compromise. And Korah's like, yeah, well, 
We're not listening to that. So Korah is not just rejecting God's appointed authority, Moses, but he's rejecting God's word itself. And he's leading others to do the same. He gathered a group of people, led them all into condemnation. And some people really do resent the fact that God has established authorities in the church. We don't make this stuff up. God established uh, that there would be pastors and elders and deacons and authority structure within the church. And some people resent that. They want to be the boss. They want to be the leader. Because they rebel against God's authority. You know, did you know that the, the way that you respond to authorities in the world is a reflection of how you respond to the authority of God? And Korah is not content with his role in the kingdom. Like I said, he had, he had some uh, role in the kingdom. In the, he had some ministry, but he was not content with it. His pride caused him to reject God and his leaders. See, Korah was a, a Levite, and he had his own God-appointed sphere of ministry, but he wasn't content with it, and so he rebelled against it. And, you know, it just reminds me of, uh, of the story of mm, Satan, isn't it? Like, the story of Satan in Ezekiel 28 and elsewhere is that he was like a chief lead angel in heaven. He had a prominent position as a, as a lead angel in heaven. But what he said was, yeah, this is great, but I want to be the boss. I don't just want to be a leader. I don't want to just be a servant. I want to be God. I want to be Lord. And it got him kicked out of heaven. And here, Kor is doing the same thing. Rebelling against authority because he wants to be the authority. And when you want to be your own God, you can no longer submit to the true God. And so the application for us is don't, don't try to be something God has not called you to be. And you might have a desire for a role or a position that God hasn't called you to or gifted you to or positioned you in. And we should not desire and, and, and work to be something God is not calling us to be. We should be content to serve the Lord wherever he has us. And so if I'm serving the Lord in the coffee bar or in the kids' ministry changing diapers or, or in the cleaning team scrubbing toilets or in the lawn care team weed-eating the, the property, like I should be content wherever God has called me to be and not feel like my role is insignificant. Um, so two, I guess, questions then is, is can you submit to God-established authority? You know, I, like we said in previous weeks that, you know, submission is only tested when you disagree. And so it's, it's like, can you say, Pastor, even though I don't agree with you, I still trust you. Do you can you still trust your leaders even if they tell you no? Or is it, I'm going to joyfully attend this church and be a part of this church until they do something I disagree with. And then I'm out. Until they tell me no for something I want to do, and then I'm out. How do we respond to God-appointed authority? The other thing to notice is that 
Korah didn't just reject authority. He rejected um, God's appointed mediator. See, Moses was the mediator between God and the people. He spoke to God on behalf of the people, and he spoke to the people on behalf of God. He was the mediator. He was the image of Christ in the Old Testament. He was a type of Christ in the Old Testament. And so Korah is rejecting the appointed, the appropriate mediator between God and man. So our application is, is these um, false teachers in Jude that he's talking about, and in our day, are people who reject the appointed mediator, and there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Timothy 2.5 says. And so if you're rejecting the only mediator, rejecting God himself, and that is the greatest sin. The greatest sin, ultimately, is the sin of unbelief. That Christ so loved you that he that he died on the cross for your sin, paying the penalty and making a way for you to receive forgiveness and eternal life. And whenever you reject him in your arrogance and pride, like Corey, you reject him, uh, that's the worst uh, sin we can commit. Now, here's the thing, guys. Um, we have two more verses left. Uh, but I think we're going to save those till next week, okay? Are you all good to wrap up here? Um, those two verses have five illustrations in them, and I think it'll take us a long time to get through them. So what if we just stop right here? And uh, I want to close with this verse out of uh, Colossians, actually. In Colossians chapter 3. Because um, what I want us to know is as we're studying... We're studying all these examples and learning from people who have turned away from God and caused others to turn away from God. And we need to be warned about them. And we, the, the point here is don't go, follow the way of Cain. Don't follow the way of Cain with empty religion. Don't follow the error of Balaam and compromise your convictions. And don't follow the rebellion of Korah and given to your arrogance and pride and cause that to reject the authority of God in his word and in his son. Don't do that. But the Christian life is not just not doing bad things. Like there's more to the Christian life than that. And Colossians 3 gives us a beautiful picture of that. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We've seen clear examples of that today. Put these things away because the wrath of God is coming for those. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. It's like you used to be this way. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
He's like, put off the old self, but then there's something new that we're putting on. Here there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So then put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If you have a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. How do we do this? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So the Christian life is a life of putting off the things of the flesh. The mortification of the flesh, it would be called theologically. We're, We're... mortifying, killing the flesh, putting off some things. And maybe there are some things in your life that you need to put away. But then it's also a life of putting on the new self and living ultimately in love towards God and towards one another. That's the Christian life. And maybe you today have never trusted Christ for your salvation. You've never surrendered to Him as your authority, as your Lord, and the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do that today. I want to encourage you today. You hear His voice. Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, but lean into it. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And He will give you new, eternal, abundant, full life. And if that's you today, I encourage you to pray right now, even as I am about to pray. And uh, if you want to talk, I would love to speak with you if you want to come to know the Lord today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for our time in your word. And I thank you for um, clear examples of the temptation that draws us away from you. The way of Cain and the error of Balaam and the rebellion of Korah. I pray that we would take these things to heart. That Your Spirit would convict us of where we need to change. And that Your Holy Spirit would empower us with the ability to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Father, I pray that You would forgive us for where we've sinned against You, but then also where we have caused others to sin against You. Forgive us, Lord, we ask. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here who is not surrendered to Jesus as Lord, that today would be the day that you give them new birth and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and that they experience the joy of knowing Jesus as Lord. Please, Lord, work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.
Amen. Would you stand? And uh, I will bless you. Hey, as we're sent out, actually, let me just uh, give you a benediction from the book of Acts. This was uh, Jesus' final benediction. So Jesus is risen from the grave, and He is ascending to the Father, and He gives one last commission to His followers in Acts 1.8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So church, as you leave here and you're going out into the mission field, may you be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be His witnesses wherever you go, bringing life and fullness to all the people you encounter this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church. You are loved.